Have you ever had an experience with black magic? Have you ever known anyone who has dabbled in the dark arts? Today on Conversations at Midnight, I want to focus on black magic and witchcraft. Now, as a disclaimer, I'm not talking about the Wiccans or Santeria or anything like that. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm referring to magic, or at least black magic, as people would say. Dark energies that can almost bend our understanding of what is right and what is wrong. What makes sense and what doesn't. And I had this idea because in the first episode, second episode, second episode, I believe it was for The Missing, where I spoke about missing people and missing things. And I shared about how this little town in uh, Utah is, is actually growing a lot, more of a city, Springville. In Springville, how I went to the uh, animal shelter there. And I found, or I saw this huge list of missing cats. And it, and it really got me thinking. It really got me uh, turning the gears for a second. I couldn't help but think about it. And I was thinking about it all this week, or at least when I recorded this of that week. I really started thinking. And I really started to look into certain things that involve black magic and witchcraft. And once again, I'm not talking about stabbing a watermelon and throwing it in, into the ocean. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about things that have carried a sense of lore, a, uh, a staple within our, our human society. And, I, and I'm not going to waste any time. I'm going to dive right into it. Now, being from Utah, uh, and I'm sure as soon as I said it, everybody, you know, most people start jumping uh, to skinwalkers. And that's true. And the reason why I'm focusing on skinwalkers is because they are considered a type of witch, a medicine man, if you will. Witch doctor? I'm not sure what word you want to use, but for me, I'm going to go with, uh, with witch, medicine man, or witch doctor. And I want to read something. I'm going to start off. I'm going to jump into something. I'm going to read something. I'm on a, I'm on a website called legendsofamerica.com forward slash Navajo dash skinwalkers forward slash. And uh, I think I actually wrote this. Oh, sorry, not wrote this. I think I actually used this website for the last episode where I was talking about the hell dogs of Nevada. So I actually might frequent this website a lot. It's actually pretty good. It, it has a lot of nice things. You guys should go check it out. Legendsofamerica.com But the Skinwalkers. Uh, I do not see a name. I'm, I did. I couldn't find one. Or the only thing I could see was uh, Kathy Weiser Alexander. I'm assuming that this is the person who wrote it. I don't really see the name of whatever. But this is not one of mine, this is one of uh, theirs. This is on Legends of America once again. Navajo Skinwalkers, Witches of the Southwest. In the Navajo culture, a skinwalker is a type of harmful witch who has the ability to turn into, possess, or disguise themselves 
as an animal. This witch is called, and excuse me for butchering this, Yi Nao Dao Oshin, I believe, I probably butchered that, by the Navajo, which translates to, quote, with it, he goes on all fours, close quote. It is just one of the several types of Navajo witches and is considered the most volatile and dangerous. Now, now let's go put a pin in this right here really fast. Going off of that, to me that makes sense. Because if you are from Utah, this is a conversation that will be brought up. Especially if you talk to the right people. Uh, you only really find two types of people here. Ones who are down to talk about it, who are all for it. And then the other half are the ones who stay away from it. Who wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. And that's the interesting thing for me. And I've started noticing the pattern. And I was talking to somebody one day and I, and I brought this up to them. You know, I thought, wow, you know, it's so weird that nobody really wants to talk about this. And he looks at me, and this is a white man. He's not, he has no affiliation with the Navajo tribe. But he looks at me and he goes, well, that's because apparently if you talk about it, you summon them. Oh, I said. And he goes, yes, absolutely. Apparently, the belief is the more you talk about it, the more you attract them. And a part of me likes to go off of this because to me that makes sense. Almost to the point where it, why the Navajo don't like to bring them up. And if this is a thing where it is that angry, it's that volatile, it's that dangerous, to me, that makes the most sense as to why they don't speak about it. It's almost like uh, you don't want that kind of trouble around. Because once it starts, hell's coming with them. That's just how I see it. Reading the rest. For the Navajo people, witchcraft is just another part of their spirituality and one of the ways of their lives. As such, witchcraft has long been part of the culture, history, and traditions. Witches exist alongside humans and are not supernaturals. The Navajo believe there are places where the powers of both good and evil are present and that those powers can be harnessed for either. The medicine men utilize these powers to heal and aid members of their communities. While those practice Navajo witchcraft seek to direct the spiritual forces to cause harm or misfortune to others. This type of Navajo witchcraft is known as the witchery way, which uses human corpses in various ways, such as tools from the bones and concoctions that are used to curse, harm, or kill intended victims. The knowledge of these powers is passed down from the elders through the generations. The Navajo are part of a larger culture area that also includes the Pueblo people, Apache, Hopi, Ute, and other groups that, are, that also have their own versions of the Skinwalker. But each includes a malevolent 
witch capable of transforming itself into an animal. Among these tribes, a number of stories and descriptions have been told throughout the years about the skinwalkers. Sometimes these witches evolved from living their lives as respected healers or spiritual guides who later chose to use these powers for evil. Though they can be either male or female, they are more often male. They walk freely among the tribe during the day and secretly transform under the cover of night. In order to become a skinwalker, he or she must be initiated by a secret society that requires the evilists of deeds. The killing of a close family member, often a sibling. After this task is completed, the individual then requires supernatural powers, which gives them the ability to shapeshift into animals. Most often they are seen in the form of coyotes, wolves, foxes, cougars, dogs, and bears, but can take the shape of any animal. They then wear the skins of the animal they transform into, hence the name skinwalker. Sometimes they also wore animal skulls or antlers on top of their heads, which brought them more power. They choose what animal they wanted to turn into. Depending on the abilities needed for a particular task, such as speed, endurance, strength, claws, and teeth, etc., they may transform again if trying to escape from their pursuers. Because of this, the Navajo consider it taboo for its members to wear the pelt of any predatory animal. However, sheepskin, leather, and buckskin are acceptable. The skinwalkers are also able to take possession of the bodies of human victims if a person locks eyes with them. After taking control, the witch can make its victims do and say things they wouldn't want to otherwise. Once they were shape-shifted, one way the others could tell they were not a real animal is their eyes. Their eyes are very different than those of an animal. Instead, their eyes are very human. When lights are shined on them, they turn bright red. Alternatively, when they are in human form, their eyes look more like animals. The evil society of the witches gather in dark caves or secluded places for several purposes. To initiate new members, plot their activities, harm people from a distance with black magic, and perform dark ceremonial rites. These ceremonies are similar to other tribal affairs, including dancing, feasts, rituals, and sand painting, but were corrupted with dark connotations. The evildoers are also said to engage in necrophilia with female corpses, commit cannibalism, incest, and grave robberies. During the gatherings, the skinwalkers shapeshift into their animal forms or go about naked, wearing only beaded jewelry and wearing ceremonial paint. The leader of the skinwalkers is usually an old man who is a very powerful and long-lived skinwalker. That's something that I, I, I was always curious about, and this is something that I started to look when it, when it came to this topic because I thought, how old are they? Do they gain some sort of immortality? Do they, do they age like normal humans even though they have other attributes, I guess? 
that say otherwise, that they're not human anymore? Because if we're talking about in the realm of superstition, myth, legends, things like that, one of the common things that I have seen is you give up the right of being human. And some people go, well, it, it's, it's not a right. I think it is. And I'm not trying to get any political with you. I'm not. I'm just saying, I think humans are very beautiful creatures. We just choose not to be. Much like their choices to be something beyond human. Something more than human. And it always takes something of evil power to lose what it is to be human. I'm not sure if that makes sense. Uh, you know, I don't know if you guys understand that on what, on what I'm trying to say. But do they gain a sense of immortality? And I'm not talking about like indestructibility. I'm just talking about they don't age like that. They don't die from old age. Sure, I mean, they could die by getting hit by a truck or something. So anything, you know, when it comes to external, you know, they're not immortal in the physical sense when it comes to injuries and they're mortal there. But age, do the filthy hands of time have a grip on them is what I'm asking. I wonder that because they gave up something. This sounds, this sounds really silly. But if you've, uh, if, if anyone has ever watched an anime or anything like that or any sort of story along those lines, there's a few common things in which the protagonist or the protagonist's friend will achieve essentially ultimate power. Plus ultra, if you will. Well, at some point, the hero or the villain or what have you realizes they're in a sticky situation and they perceive in that moment, this is my last shot. This is it. And so they put their entire life force, their entire energy into something. And, you know, and there's always that cheesy line where it's like, but you will die if you do this. They cross that line. And I, I always wondered. What do you sacrifice for achieving such power? And in those stories, it's usually their life. Or if you're a fan of Marvel stories. You know that thing that's like a meme now? Where, spoiler alert, but after the Thanos snap happened and he's in limbo or wherever he's at. And he's talking to a very young Gamora. And she looks at him and she goes, did you do it? And he says, yes. And she says, what, what did it cost? And he takes a pause and he looks at her and he goes, everything. As cheesy as it sounds, in my eyes, that's, that's what they must have done. The witches, these skinwalkers, uh, shamans. And I'm not, not every shaman, but you know, the ones were among the black magic. What, what did they give up? Did you do it? Did you kill your own sibling? Yes. But at what cost? Everything. And some people might go, well, no, they're still alive. They're still... How do you define everything? Seriously. 
How do you how do you define it? How do you define it? Because to me, I could still be alive, heart beating, air in my lungs, and I could still lose everything. And I'll still be alive. And I'll still wake up every morning. And I will still and I can still lose it all. So if you're no longer human, if you're whatever they are, do you still have everything? And I wonder how many of them, how many of them, and I'm about to get really nerdy again, but I wonder how many of them experience some sort of Darth Vader-esque mentality. Where there were those days where he sat there and he's like, oh my gosh. I want to undo everything I did, but I've gone too far. Then I could never undo whatever I did. If there really is a skinwalker, if, if they are real, I wonder how many of them exist who attend these uh, um, meetings in these caves or secluded lands. And I wonder how many of them sit there in the back of their mind, they think, what have I done? Sorry for my little tangent. It's just, it's so fascinating to me how an individual in their emotional state, uh, state that they can sit there and make these choices. Because there's been many times in my life where I've made these stupid, dumb choices. And after 10 minutes, 10 minutes after doing it, I sit there and I go, oh my gosh, what have I done? And it's irreversible. Irreversible. If I was a skinwalker and I did what I did, I know I'll regret it. And if I had to kill a sibling of mine, because apparently that's one of the things, or someone close to you, but if I had to kill one of my siblings every day of my life, I'll sit there with endless thought of him. And since I'm no longer accepted by society, I will easily. Just watch his family from afar. Who knows? I'll probably be some sort of silent protector. <laughs> you know? As weird as that sounds. And I and I know that this is a wrong... This is the wrong time to use this term. I just can't think of anything else. But it's like that survivor's guilt. You know? It's that guilt of, I can't believe I did that to you. God, I'm so sorry. You know? I constantly wonder, seriously, I really do, I constantly wonder how many of them regret their actions. If there's any skinwalker, people who are skinwalker and they're listening, which I doubt, contact me. I will, uh, which that reminds me, I actually have an announcement at the end of this, so hopefully I can, I can remember. But going back, skinwalkers also have other powers, including reading others' minds. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Controlling their thoughts and behavior, causing disease and illness, destroying property, and even death. Those who have talked of their encounters with these evil beings describe a number of ways to know if a skinwalker is near. 
They make sounds around homes, such as knocking on windows, banging on walls, scraping noises on the roof. On some occasions, they have been spied peering through windows. More often, they appear in front of vehicles in hopes of causing a serious accident. It is said that in addition to being able to shapeshift, the skinwalker is also able to control the creatures of the night, such as wolves, owls, and other animals to make them do its bidding. Some are able to call up the spirits of the dead and reanimate the corpses. Whoa! Did not know that. To attack their enemies. Because of this, the Indians rarely ventured out alone. Its supernatural powers are uncanny. As they are said to run faster than a car and have the ability to jump high cliffs. They are extremely fast, agile, impossible to catch, and leave tracks that are larger than any those of any animal. When they have been seen, they have been described as not quite human and not fully animal. They are usually naked. But some have reported seeing the creature wearing tattered shirts or jeans. The skinwalker kills out of greed, anger, envy, spite, or revenge. It also robs graves of, for personal wealth and to collect much-needed ingredients for use in black magic. These witches live on the unexpired lives of their victims, and they must continually kill or perish themselves. There it is! I should have kept reading before I went on my tangent. There it is. Assuming that this is true, right? Assuming that this is all true, which I won't lie. There's been two or three things that I've read where I'm like, eh, that's a stretch. These <laughs> That's a stretch, and I'm talking about a human who can shapeshift. Isn't that funny? These witches live on their unexpired lives of their victims, and they must continually kill or perish themselves. See, so there's two things that I've, caught my attention that have been pointed out to me as I'm reading this because I'm going off the cuff here right I'm I'm experiencing this new information as you're hearing right now and this is something that has caught my attention and that is the two things that have been that have stood out to me is that one it almost seems like black magic acts as some sort of battery they have to continue to indulge in black magic. They have to continue to indulge in it to maintain whatever it is that they want to maintain. Uh, in this case, I guess we'll call it evil. And to me, that is very interesting. And of course, I, in, in almost a vampire-esque fashion, they need the unexpired lives of their victims. So they must continually live or perish themselves. You know, it's like, if vampire, you know, I don't know, I'll probably have to look into this one, but vampires, if they are real, isn't that the lore of them? That they have to feed off the blood of their victims to achieve immortal life. Now, some people might argue saying, well, they don't really need blood or whatever. I've I've actually heard that argument before. But in this case, it seems like this is a, a shared trait amongst anything that has indulged in uh, the dark arts. 
once once you're in the only way to sustain your own life is continuing to get deeper and deeper into it to me this is this is very odd and i'm and i'm sorry i haven't put it in much better words you know this is just something that has come off the top of my head as i'm reading this so sorry for any confusion that i may have caused Skinwalkers and other witches have long been blamed for all manner of unexpected struggles and tragedies through the years, including sickness, poor crops, and sudden death, even smaller or individual problems such as windstorms during dances, alienation of affection by mates, the death of livestock, and reversal of fortune were often believed to be the work of a witch. Really? This was most apparent with the Navajo Witch Purge of 1878. Wow! Okay, I'm sorry. Now, I'm going to finish this paragraph, and then I'll get on to... We're going to put a pin in that. This was most apparent with the Navajo Witch Purge of 1878, which initially evolved from a cultural response to so many people moving across and onto their lands. After a series of wars with the U.S. Army, the Navajo were expelled from their land and forced to march to the Bosque Redondo, or Fort Summer in New Mexico, in what is known as the Long Walk of the Navajo, in 1864. Wait, what? Maybe I just, I'm getting confused, because it says 1878, now it says 1864. There, the people suffered from bad water, failed crops, illness, and death, reducing their numbers drastically. After four years, the government finally admitted they had made a mistake and the Navajo were allowed to return to their homeland in the Four Corners area. Oh, okay, okay. During these years, many of the tribe's members were said to have turned to shape-shifting to escape the terrible conditions. In the meantime, the rest of the tribe were convinced that their gods had deserted them. Oh, wow. So the pin... Uh, you know that I said now let's go put a pin in this a witch purge that's not the first kind in, you know as we know Salem witch trials so the Navajo even had their own their own thing their own purge in 1878 that's really intriguing once the people had returned to their homeland their condition improved but the dreaded skinwalkers, from whom they blamed for their years on the bleak reservation, were still among them. Accusations of witchcraft and the hunting of the skinwalkers began. When someone found a collection of witch artifacts wrapped in a copy of the Treaty of 1868, the tribal members unleashed deadly consequences. The Navajo Witch Purge occurred in 1878 in which 40 Navajo suspected witches were killed in order to restore harmony and balance for the tribe. Today, most of the tales of sightings of these witches do not include death or injury, but rather are more trickster-like. Numerous people have told stories of swift animals running alongside their vehicles, matching their speed. After a short period, however, they run off into the wilderness. Along the way, animals sometimes turn into a man, 
who sometimes bangs on the hood. Okay, hold on. Along the way, these animals t- sometimes turn into a man. I was talking to uh, uh, to this man I knew here. I, I sorry for the stammering. I couldn't. I didn't want to say friend because I I don't think we really are more like acquaintances. But he used to be a um, old boss of mine. I actually talked about the story where me and him heard running in the courtyards. I think I said his name was Kyle in the story. That's not his real name, but let's continue to use Kyle. When we were talking, one of the weeks that we were just talking garbage, I asked him, I said, hey, have you, you, know, have you heard any stories about the Skinwalker? And he goes, oh, no, like nothing from the ranch or anything. And he stops and he goes, actually, you know what? I actually do know. He goes, I only know of two. And he told me the the two stories. After I'm done reading this, I'm going to have to, I would love to share them with you. So if you don't mind, please. But I paused because that same man, when we were talking, he told me that he heard somewhere and I didn't include it in the two stories because I don't, I don't know if you even want to consider this like a story story. But he told me that one time him, uh, that he knew, he knew this guy and his friend's friend were out in the desert uh, in Moab here in Utah. And they said near the campsite they saw a coyote or some sort of a jackal fox maybe they couldn't really tell but it was it was a dog-like animal they said it stood up on its hind legs and walked like a human and it sprinted into the dark you know into the night and apparently everybody packed up around four in the morning when this happened they packed up their gear they threw it in their trucks and they went home because to them that was a sign of a skinwalker and they had to leave so when, when they talk about that uh, here, along the way, these animals sometimes turn into a man who sometimes bangs on the hood. They never banged on the hood, but the idea of transitioning from animal to man, that's a common thing that is said that they can, um, that they can do. They say usually when you see an animal walking on two legs, run, because it's not, it's not entirely an animal. Back to the back to the article. Another story tells of a man who was making repairs on an old ranch home when he began to hear loud laughter coming from the nearby sheep pens. Thinking he was alone, he went to investigate and found all of the sheep but one huddled in one corner of the pen. However, there was a lone ram separated from the group that was standing upright and laughing in a very human manner. Oh my gosh, I just got the chills from that one. After the man locks eyes with the ram, he sees that his eyes are not that of an animal, but very human-like. The animal then casually walked away on all fours. Some say they have seen them running through the night, sometimes turning into a fiery ball, leaving streaks of color behind them. I've never heard of that. I've never heard of that. 
Not saying it's not true, I just, this is the first I'm hearing of it. Others have seen angry-looking humanoid figures looking down on them from the cliffs, mountains, and mesas. That I have heard of. I actually have heard of that one. And down here, I, I don't know how common it is, but I've met at least three people, three, two people, who have said that they've experienced that. That they would look up, especially uh, in the area of Arches National Park, in that area, in the Moab area. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it makes sense because I've been to Moab about two, three times already. Beautiful. Beautiful area. But all that cliff and red rock? Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding me? I could totally. There's moments, kind of like what I said in the last thing, I, um, in that piece I wrote in the last episode. There are moments where I swear on the corner of my eye. And I'm sure it's just my eyes playing tricks on me or anything. I'm, I'm not going to say it's definitive proof. But there's always these moments on the corner of my eye where I feel like I could have sworn I just saw someone standing there. And then they move and then I, and then it gives me the reaction to look towards that, you know, that direction and then they're gone. So that's, that I have heard of. Now the fiery ball leaving streaks of color behind them, ne- never heard of that. Never heard of that. Never, never even, no, no, not at all. Which is interesting, because if that's the case, then perhaps, would that be the magic? <laughs> you know, would that be the black magic? Would, would that be the dark arts? I don't know. Continuing with the article. In the 1980s, one of the most notable events occurred when a family was driving through the Navajo Reservation. As they slowed to make a sharp curve, something jumped from the ditch. It was described as black, hairy, and wore a shirt and pants. A few days after this event, at their home in Flagstaff, Arizona, the family was awakened to the sounds of loud drumming and chanting. Outside their home were three dark forms of men outside their fence. However, these shadowy creatures were seemingly unable to climb the fence and soon left. These events have occurred in the Four Corners area of southwest Colorado, northeast Utah, northeast Arizona, and northwest New Mexico. In the 1990s, a ranch in the northeast Utah, far away from the Navajo Reservation, became the partial focus of the Skinwalkers. Called the Sherman Ranch, the Skinwalker Ranch, and the UFO Ranch. This place has a history of UFOs, aliens, cattle mutilations, and crop circles. Located near the Ute Indian Reservation, these people have long thought that the Navajo put a curse on their tribe in retribution for many perceived transgressions, and since then, the skinwalkers have plagued the Ute people. Witchcraft represents the antithesis of Navajo culture values and is not tolerated. They, uh, they work to avoid it, to prevent it, and cure it in their daily behaviors. However, when it exists, their laws have always said that when a person becomes a witch, they have forfeited their hu- humanity and their right to exist, and so they shall be killed. However, skinwalkers are notoriously hard to kill, and attempts are usually unsuccessful. 
trying to kill one would often result in the witch seeking revenge. Successfully killing generally requires the assistance of a powerful shaman who knows spells and rituals that can turn the skinwalker's evil back upon itself. Another alternative is to shoot the creature with bullets that have been dipped into white ash. However, this shot must hit the witch in the neck or the head. Traditionally, the Navajo will not speak with outsiders about these creatures. For fear of retribution by the skinwalkers, for that matter, it is taboo subject amongst the natives themselves. There is even a quote by Dr. Adrian Kani, Native American academic writer and activist. I'm sorry if I said the name wrong. The quote is, There are not things that need or should be discussed by outsiders at all. I'm sorry if that seems unfair, but that's how our cultures survive. There you go. And that is the full article. And I find it very intriguing that even the Navajo have achieved that view where their laws have always said, however, when it exists, their laws have always said that when a person becomes a witch, they have forfeited their right to humanity and their right to exist. So they shall be killed. To me, see, okay, see, they have no tolerance for this. I'm sure that some of you, and I do not blame you, but I'm sure that some of you are going, well, this is a crock of crap. And normally I'd go, hey, you know what? I see it. And in fact, I still, like, I still understand it. The reason why I am leaning towards that I can actually see this being a thing, especially that last part about the shamans and able to combat against uh, the, the entity that is the skinwalker is um, I've actually, I was talking to uh, a Native American friend that I knew in Florida, huh, acquaintance. For the sake of it, I don't, I don't want to share his name, so I would, uh, Mark. <laughs> Let's call him Mark. One time I started speaking to Mark. He was a part of the Seminole tribe. So I looked at him and I said, hey, um, do the Seminoles have anything similar to the Navajo Skinwalker? He goes, oh, I don't know. I haven't really looked into the myths and stuff. But the most that I can say, though, is that uh, we do have a few stories. And so we started talking about that and whatnot. And I said, well, how do you feel about them? He goes, ah, I don't know. I don't really know how I feel about him or anything like that. And then he stops and you could see him drifting. You know, people like drift into thought where they're staring straight through you, you know, because they're not really looking at you. Well, he was doing that, but he wasn't looking at me. But I could just tell by his eyes that he was thinking of something. And I didn't want to interrupt that. So he stops and he turns to me and he goes, I do believe in magic. I said, really? And he goes, yeah. He goes, well, we call it magic. I don't know what you want to call it, but he says, there's a story that my cousin, he goes, my cousin was around for one of the very last known witch doctors within the tribe, within the Seminole tribe. Uh, they called them war doctors. That's, that's what Mark said. Mark called him a war doctor. And he said that his cousin was so infatuated with this with this older man 
that he would go to his house every day and ask him, please, can you teach me? Can you show me? Can you, can you help me? His cousin was about to be sent to Vietnam. This is back in the 60s. And he keeps asking the old man, hey, you know, can you help me or can you show me, please? And the old man kept telling him, no, get away from me. I don't want to talk to you. And, they, and, they, and he said he, they went back and forth for a while. And sure enough, the old man goes, fine, then come help me do stuff. So they walked around. You know, he took them for weeks on chores and cleanings and things like that. You know, like he was using them. One day they're out in the middle of the Everglades. And if you've been to Florida and if you've seen the Everglades, it's huge. The Everglades, Everglades National Park is huge. And they were out there. They were out in, in the Everglades for something, I guess, some sort of ingredient, some sort of, I don't know. But Mark says, my cousin, and Mark's cousin told Mark this. Like, this is where Mark got it from. He got it from the horse's mouth. But Mark's cousin said that he kept asking him, and the old man gets really annoyed. He goes, please, can you just show me something? Can you, can you, can you show me anything? And the old man goes, fine, okay, sure. And in his annoyed state, stands up, and he says he walks over to a tree. Nothing crazy. It wasn't this uh, tree that stood out from the rest. It was just your standard tree. I don't know what kind of tree it was. It says he walks over to this tree and snaps a branch off and walks back. And the distance from where Mark's cousin was standing was, I think he said, somewhere around 30, 40 feet away. He says that he, the old man, takes the branch, walks away from the branch to where Mark's cousin is, turns around, does some chanting, you know, and boom, lightning struck the tree. Mark's cousin fell to the ground, stood up, and then the old man is laughing. Just laughing, like this good, deep-from-the-gut laugh. And Mark said his cousin ran away from that old man. And as he was running, he could still hear him laughing and laughing. Now, some people are going, are you, are you telling me on a crystal clear day? It wasn't crystal clear. Mark said that his cousin said that, that, that there were clouds in the air. And I don't know why. And for my weird brain, that makes sense to me. That makes sense. Because if it was a crystal clear day and then he has lightning, boom, whatever. That, to me, that, you know, that doesn't work with me. But in my weird brain, in my weird frame of thinking, if magic is real, if it is a thing, then they have to base it, or they have to use it. How would I say this? I, hmm. If magic is real, it's, it's another, to me, it's a form of crude science. And I know that, I, I, I know that that's weird, but to me, true, genuine magic, right, is, I don't know, hey, like this story, Bolt of Lightning appears strikes the strikes the tree on a crystal clear day beautiful day 
To me, that doesn't make sense. But to sit there and say that there was clouds in the sky, it looked really rainy. Shakes the twig, boom. Lightning strikes the tree. To me, that, that makes sense because you're using what is available. And if that kind of magic is available, if it is a thing, then in that instance, he used lightning as his core, as his source. He used the clouds in the sky, the buildup, the electricity. He used it on his command. And that is why in my weird brain, that makes sense. It's kind of like, um, you know, you can't make things out of thin air. You have to use other things in combination to create it. And that story, I've never forgotten it. The idea that that is a possibility in which a person, that, that the ancients have had the capability of utilizing nature and its elements, it intrigues me a lot, actually. It, with this topic of black magic, there's also the idea of, of witches. Witches. And once again, I'm going to say it one more time. I am not talking about Wicca. I am not talking about uh, Santeria or what have you. I'm not talking about that. The witches I refer to is that of dark energies, dark arts, human killing human, or at least something that once was human killing human. Pure evil. I have known many people who practice the Wiccan arts, and they are, and I mean this in no offense, they are nothing like the, like the things that I'm talking about. And if I'm wrong, I, I want to see it proven. I have this sheet of paper here. And this story um, really just floored me when, when I heard this. So I printed it out and I had the papers for a while. <laughs> it is the story of the Witch of Yazoo City. Yazoo City is in Mississippi. It's a, it, it's a city in Mississippi. It's been there for quite some time. I have family out in Mississippi. Not in Yazoo, but, but in Mississippi. And I just couldn't help myself. And this is something that I feel like is as if it's perfect for this, for this episode. Now, this is, a, uh, this is a story. It is as told from the words of Willie Morris. I believe he wrote a, uh, he wrote a book. And he talked about the witch in his own stories. Uh, I think it's more of a memoir. He is not the only one who has spoken about the witch of Yazoo. It, it's not exclusive to him. He is the one that, in my opinion, has put it best with his words. I like the way that he wrote it out. I believe this was written in the 70s. I believe his memoir was written in the 70s. So this is The Witch of Yazoo City. I got it from a website. Um, I believe it was the history website for Yazoo. And I quote, Many years ago, there was a mean and ugly woman who lived alone in a carefully guarded seclusion near the banks of the Yazoo River. Nobody knew anything about her. 
but they loathed her nonetheless. They hated her so much that they didn't even give her a name. It was rumored that on stormy nights she would lure fishermen into her house, poison them with arsenic, and bury them on a densely wooded hill nearby. This was her hobby. But although many people suspected her of these evil diversions, no one was able to prove a thing. Then, one late afternoon in 1884, a boy named Joe Bob Duggett was passing by her house on a raft when he heard a terrible, ungodly moan from one of the rooms. He tied his raft to a cypress branch, ran to the house, and looked through the window. What he saw chilled his blood and bones. Two men were stretched out on the floor of the parlor, and an old woman wearing a black dress caked with filth and cockleburs had turned her face up to the ceiling and was singing some dreadful incantations, waving her arms in demented circles all the while. Joe Bob raced to his raft, floated into town, and told the sheriff and all his men what he had seen. They got a horse and buggy and sped to the old woman's house. They smashed down the front door but were unable to find either the dead men, who were never been found to this day, or the demented old woman. They climbed the stairs to the attic, opened the door, an inch or two, and they caught a sight of several a dozen half-starved cats, all bunched together and gyrating in their wild insanity. Two skeletons, which were never identified by the sheriff's office, dangled from a rusty rafter. Fish bones littered the floor, and the smell was unusually pungent. The sheriff and his deputies and Joe Bob stood there, transfixed. Finally, beginning to bang the door shut when eight or ten cats tried to get out. Then from the backyard, they heard the sound of footsteps in the fallen pecan leaves. And from an upstairs window, they saw the old woman sneaking away into the swamps, which abounded along the river. Stop in the name of the law, the sheriff shouted. But the old woman, who as Joe Bob would later tell his grandchildren, looked half ghost and half scarecrow, but all witch. She took off into the swamps at a manacle gallop. They followed in hot pursuit. And a few minutes later, they came upon a sight that Joe Bob remembered so well he would describe it again for the thousandth time. And on his deathbed, in the King's Daughter Hospital in 1942, the old woman had been trapped in a patch of quicksand. And they caught up with her just seconds before her ghastly, pockmarked head was about to go under. She had time to shout these words to, at her pursuers. I shall return. Everybody always hated me here. I will break out of my grave and burn down the whole town on the morning of May 25th, 1904. Then as Joe Bob also described it later, with a gurgle, and, the, and a wretch the woman sank from sight to her just desserts.
With the aid of pitchforks and long cypress limbs, the authorities were able to retrieve the body. The next day, with the wind and rain sweeping down from the hills, they buried her in the center of the town cemetery, in a cluster of trees and bushes. And around her grave, they put the heaviest chain they could find, some thirty strong and solid links. If she can break through that and burn down the city, the sheriff said, more in funny than serious, then she deserves to burn it down. The years went by. The long Mississippi seasons came and went, and the town forgot about the old woman. On the morning of May 25th, 1904, some 20 years later, Miss Pauline Wise was planning her wedding. As she entered her parlor to show her visitors some gifts, she discovered a small blaze. Suddenly, a strong wind, unusual for that time of year, spread the fire to an adjoining house. From Main Street, the fire spread to all intersecting streets and soon reached the residential section. The roar of the ever-increasing flames, the confusion of terrorized thousands, the hoarse shouts of the firefighters, and the sound of crashing walls made a scene of awesome horror that remained a fixed picture in the memory of eyewitnesses as long as their lives lived. Many fine homes were destroyed, and every bank, every physician, lawyer, and dentist's office Excuse me. Every hotel and boarding house, every meat market and bakery, the newspaper and printing office, every church, club room and lounge room, every telephone, telegraph and express office, the depot, the post office, every furniture store, every hardware store, all but livery stable, all but one drugstore, every barbershop, every tailor shop, every undertaking establishment, and in fact, nearly every business necessity. The next day, after the murderous flames had consumed themselves, several elder people of the town made a journey to the grave in the middle of the cemetery. What they discovered would be passed along to my friends and to me many years later. And as boys, we would go see it for ourselves for no repairs were ever made, as a reminder to the future generations. As if by some supernatural strength, the chain around the grave had been broken in two. When I, when I heard this story, I thought, no way. So I went and I looked it up. You can go on the internet right now. I don't know if the witch is true. That part I'm not sure. But I'll tell you this. There was indeed a fire that did happen in the city of Yazoo on May 25th, 1904. It indeed burned down 90% of the town. There is a grave in the cemetery of that city where there are chains around it. And one side of the chain because they have it in a, in a square. They put the chains in a square. 
one side of that square is broken in half. You can look it up yourself. It is a thing. You can see it. So here's, here's the common factor as, as, I, uh, as I read about the Navajo. The Navajo talks about indulging in the black magic, and as long as you indulge in it, then, you know, and as long as you kill, then you're able to maintain life. Even though it doesn't say it, I find it very disturbing and odd that this woman said the date and year, she said the month, day, and year of when she would burn that place to the ground. There's something there. Something exists there that if you get lost in the occult, that if you get lost in the black magic, and I know that they're two different things, but I said the word occult. Christopher Lee, he's the famous actor. If you're a Star Wars fan, he played Count Dooku. If you're Lord of the Rings, he, I believe he was a Sauron. I believe he was Sauron the White. I'm probably butchering the name, I'm sorry. He played him. And uh, Peter Jackson's adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. He fancied the occult, believe it or not. He, uh, he said he had many friends who focused on that realm. Christopher Lee has gone and said, and I quote, I have met people who claim to be Satanists, who claim to be involved with black magic, who claimed that not only they knew about it, but as I said, I certainly have not been involved. And I warn you all, never, never, never. You will not only lose your mind, you will lose your soul. You will lose your soul to this. And that's the thing. See, so not only have these beings, these ones who are human, they have lost their soul. But they have achieved something in return that excels even death. Not even the clutches of death can hold them back when it comes to unleashing whatever magic they place upon. Just like the witch of Yazoo, she said the day, month, year. To which she will cause a fire to burn down that city. And just like the idea of the Native Americans. Where I said in my mind it makes sense. When you use what you have. There was a fire burning. I don't know how the fire started. No one does. But a gust of wind. If that magic is true. And let's say that she. And let's say. The what-if game, let's say it's true, let's say it's a real thing, then that magic used the oxygen. It f gave that fire life, more life. It fed it just enough wind and oxygen for it to carry on to different pieces, different homes, different buildings, and the fire roared. I find it incredible to me, something, and, and let me just pause right here. Let me just give this as a, as a disclaimer as well. 
this should not be appealing to anybody. It shouldn't be. Not not these dark arts, not this black magic, not this this bad stuff. It shouldn't be appealing to anybody. It's interesting, but it's not appealing. It shouldn't be, at least. Do not let anger seep into your heart. Do not let some nasty view of life change who you are. Don't ever let it take you. Because as I was saying earlier, there is a point where you cannot reverse what you have done. And you lose that right to be human. I said I would share two stories from Kyle. We were talking one day. And I asked him, I said, hey, um, do you know anything about skinwalkers? And he tells me too. As I said earlier. <laughs> the first story was when he was in high school. So he used to he used to bounce between California and Utah. During the summer, he would go to California. And then during school season, he'd come back to Utah. He was saying how there was this girl in his class. She was very adventurous. And one day, the idea of the skinwalker was brought up. And they started talking about it and conversing about it. And I guess in their conversation, she told Kyle, you know what? Apparently there's a road called Skinwalker Road by the locals. I'm going to go out to it at night. And, um... I'm going to see what's out there. Kyle goes, well, I mean, sure. Hey, that's what you want to do. He said a few weeks go by and one day she comes back to school. Or he sees her at school and she was being really weird. So he pulls her aside later on that day. And he says, are you okay? So she looks at him and she responds, yeah, I just, man, I, I need to talk to you. Sure. She con she confesses to him that she went to the to that skinwalker road. It was her and a friend. These two girls in the car. And they drove out there and they parked on the side of the road. And she turned off her car. She turned the key, she and she let the car turn off. And she rolled down the windows. And her and her friend sat there. And she looks at her friend and she goes, I think you have to say skinwalker or something to get its attention. So her friend, scared, whispers it. And she gets mad. No, you can't whisper it, you know. So she sticks her head up the car and she goes, skinwalker! She yells it. Much louder than I did, obviously. Don't want to blurt into the mic. And they sat there for about 20 minutes, 15 minutes. And she said, when we thought it was just stupid nonsense. And then on the road, in front, down the road, good, good length down the road, she sees these, these lights. 
or a light, I'm sorry, a white light. And it's coming towards them. So she thought, oh, you know what? It's probably a motorcyclist. Let me uh, flash my lights for a second just to tell them that I'm here. You know, just to show them, hey, there's a car here. So she flashed her lights or she just turned them on. Uh, actually, I think I, I think she turned them on. Sorry for the confusion. And she turns them on and she leaves them on. And she said a few seconds after she turned them on, the light disappears. It's like someone turned off the light. And her friend starts getting anxious. She just, she gets this really bad feeling, this negative feeling. So she tells her, hey, let's, uh, let's get out of here, man. Okay, fine. So she turns the car on, makes a U-turn. As she was turning... She just, she just about made the entire U-turn. And she said, there's this huge coyote wolf-like creature standing in the middle of the road. And I say huge, I'm not talking about the size of a house. Huge in the sense of larger than a wolf or a coyote. And she said, it's staring at them. Now, she didn't give the detail about if it had human eyes or anything. She just acknowledged that this thing was big for what kind of animal it was. And it was staring. It had intelligence. It was able to stare and acknowledge them. And she said that her friend was getting really anxious and she was like, okay, we need to leave. So... She takes her car and she actually has to drive around the animal. The animal didn't budge. It turned its head towards it, but it didn't step aside or anything. So she had to drive around the animal. So she starts driving and her friend starts freaking out. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And they got off the road. It was probably about like a mile long. And they got off the road and they made it back to society, if you will. And she goes, why, why were you freaking out during the, during the drive off the road? And she goes, because that thing was running as fast as the car. That, that animal, that dog was running as fast as the car. And Kyle said that her friend or his friend, uh, she, ever since then, she was just she didn't like to talk about it anymore. She refused to speak about it. And she believes to this day that it, that it was a skinwalker. And it took the form of a coyote or a wolf or some canine animal. The other story is Kyle said that his father has a family friend. He is a truck driver. And about 20-something years ago, late 90s, mid-90s, around there, Kyle was telling me the story of how the family friend was driving through Colorado. And he gets a radio call from one of the local truck drivers in the area on the shortwave radio. And it's this gentleman asking, you know, help. Hey, I have a flat tire. Uh, can someone stop by and um, come help me? 
So Kyle's father's friend agreed. Sure. I'm actually the closest one to you. I mean, it's going to I'm have to make a U-turn, but I can come help you, of course. Turns around. Made a 2-hour or hour and a half drive to where this gentleman was and he was in a rural part of the Colorado uh, side. It was towards the border of Utah and Colorado. And he says that he arrives on the scene, gets out, and he says that when he got there, the truck driver's uh, driver door was open. It was left open. Gets out of his truck, walks around to him. There's no driver in there, but there's blood. Not an insane amount, not like in Saw, but there's a good amount of blood on the steering wheel, on the handle of the door. And you know those big rigs, how they have to like take steps, almost like stairs to get up to their, to the driving seat, to the wheel. I'm sure that the, if there's a truck driver out there that is listening in, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Underneath those steps, there's a big old fuel tank. I think it's for fuel. I'm pretty sure it's for fuel. It's aluminum. Most of the time it's, has a chrome on it. It's a, and there was blood there. And they called the cops. Cops closed off the road. Blood led from the driver door or from the driver's seat climbing down. Crossed the street into the woods. They never found him again. The gentleman who made the call for help because he had like a flat tire or something. And I thought that was the end of the story. I'm thinking, oh, wow, that's a crazy story. And he goes, oh, no. Years later, my dad's friend finally said one little detail that he didn't like saying. Apparently, the gentleman who made the call when the father's friend was almost there got on the radio again saying that there's some sort of bear, some sort of animal that is walking around the truck. And this is in the middle of the night. And he and he never... Got on the shortwave again, never hopped on the radio again, never nothing. And no one saw him since. And he says he avoids that highway or that interstate road at all costs now. Now, when it comes to black magic, I don't know, in so many ways, in so many words, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know, I don't know the existence of it, nor do I know the origin but I find it really odd that there are things like these stories, like the Skinwalker, the Witch of Yazoo, where black magic is involved. It is said it, it, it's, it's essentially the veins that power this being. They must keep indulging in it in order to sustain itself, along with whether it is consuming the blood, Taking the person's life, I don't know. But there's some sort of trade of life essence for life essence. One for another. I know not why people find it appealing. Why some people want to indulge in these dark arts. And prey on others. A lot of people go missing and a part of me can't help but think perhaps... Some of these dark arts are reason to blame. I got a letter from a, from a friend of mine. He sent me an email. 
and I'm going to read it. He said, hey, buddy, I enjoy the Missing Persons podcast. As I've been listening, I'm impressed with all the stories you gather. I figured you probably are always looking for new stories and whatnot. And I have a place I think that you should do a bit of research on. I used to live in Seattle. For a brief moment, I stayed in South Seattle, which was pretty rough. But honestly, out of the three places I lived, they actually might be worth doing some research. White Center, South Park, and Georgetown. I have never met so many Satan worshippers in my life. Literal people who openly worshipped Satan. Anyways, there was this one skate park we would always pass going into South Park, and it definitely had a presence. I lived near this skate park for over a year, and literally, not once did I ever see anyone skating in there. It was abandoned, covered in graffiti. It was just a big circle, and there were these four arched doorways to enter the skate park. The weirdest part was, over each of the doorways, someone had carved slash placed these faces and each one was painted in a different way. I could only find one of the pictures that I have of them, but I distinctly remember one of the faces. It had its eyes painted with red paint dripping down almost like blood, and that face had the devil's horns as well. We always walked past it, and one day in the middle of the afternoon, my partner and I decided to walk in there and check it out. And, as I said, there was a presence-slash-darkness that filled that park. We never went back there again. Oftentimes, if people went missing, the bodies turned up somewhere in South Park. Not necessarily at the skate park, but South Park wasn't very big. Anyways, I figured you probably are on the hunt for new stories, so maybe check out that area and see what you can find that's interesting. Loving the podcast, keep up the great work. Thank you for those nice things, and I appreciate the letter. What's interesting is he sent me pictures of what he was talking about. He attached it to the email. And the one that he was talking about with the face, as I was, uh, as I was looking at the image, on the forehead of the statue, or of the face, carving, someone painted an upside-down cross. So that's intriguing. A part of this, I suppose, and what I'm trying to say, is that there are areas like this where there's these bad vibes, these bad energies. And every time I meet somebody who practices within the dark arts, I feel those dark energies. And I believe that they claim places. I believe whatever it is that is glued to their back, they can leave it at places, as weird as it sounds. Their energy, their essence, is like a snail. It leaves a trail. And it's weird. And it's creepy. It's, there's, I don't know how, but we can just feel it. Humans have this weird sense about it. Before I end the show, before this episode comes to an end, I have a few announcements. Okay? If you would like to send me 
your own stories, please do so. You can write me via email. I created an email for stories. The email is stories at midnight at yahoo.com. I'll say it one more time. Stories at midnight at yahoo.com. Stories, S-T-O-R-I-E-S, A-T, midnight, M-I-D-N-I-G-H-T, at yahoo, Y-A-H-O-O.com. You can send me your mail, your stories, and I would love to read them on the podcast. Send me anything you got. But make sure it is within the confines of the supernatural or uncanny. Aliens, UFOs, ghosts, demons, possessions, dark arts, skinwalkers, things of that nature. Please, please send me these these stories. I would love to read them. And in the future, I want to branch out more. Maybe I'll have a subreddit. And I will start to look into certain things. Unfortunately, it seems like the sun is setting on this episode. I want to thank you all for listening for another beautiful week of Conversations at Midnight. I am, in the future, I'm going to start giving announcements. But for now, all that I can give you is a farewell. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening in. Next week, uh, I'm going to spoil it, but next week I am going to finish this topic of black magic. I want to come back to this. So part two will be out, as you can tell by the title, part one. But part two will be out next week. And I want to focus more on this topic. I want to focus more on the finer details of it. Because I'm not done. Thank you so much. Until next time, be safe. It's uncanny out there. Be careful what lurks out there. Because you might be one of the ones that go missing.